You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. What are the current issues when it comes to matters of life and well, ethical issues when we're looking at these topics in life? What's going on in the current news? Well, what better place to look than our friends from Lutherans for Life to help us dig into those topics? Thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for their great support of Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. You can find information on them on our website, kfuo.org, Concordia University, Wisconsin, in the sponsor section. In studio with me today, the Reverend Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life. Pastor Salamink, welcome back to Faith and Family. Good morning. Glad to have you in studio. It is, uh, well, it's the beginning of a school year for many families, and uh, Salamink's all the the little and not-so-little Salamink's off to... uh, Often, they're not so little anymore, are they? Mm, but taking advantage of our fine Lutheran education system here in St. Louis. So the, the Salamink's all starting off school with a good start this year, I gather? Absolutely. Very good. Glad to hear that. And uh, glad that, well, this is what, your third year in St. Louis? Entering my third year, yes. Third year in St. Louis and with uh, Lutherans for Life now for a while. The past year, uh, conferences and, and events with Lutherans for Life, many things going uh, that, that have gone on in the last year. What have you seen? What have you learned? What have you, you gained from your time uh, traveling and meeting so many people across this? Well, not just across the country. I think you've, you've had some international travel as well. Mm-hmm. It is a great time to be a Lutheran for Life, and it's a great time to be Lutherans for mm-hmm. Life. Um, our message continues to be received enthusiastically uh, across the country, and as you mentioned, internationally as well. Uh, last week, I returned from a retreat with LCMS missionary leadership in the Dominican Republic for all of the Latin American region, and um, had some interesting conversations about the relevance of a variety of life issues uh, in that area of the world, and. Uh, uh, in addition to all of our uh, domestic activities as well. Are there ways that are clearly obvious that Americans differ from other cultures when it comes to life issues? Uh, it, That's a loaded question, isn't well, it? Well, <laughs> for one, um, the legalization of abortion is rare. In Latin America, there are places like Uruguay, which are more progressive, but in the Dominican Republic, for example, it's illegal even in cases where the mother's health is in danger. Um, But we have anecdotal evidence from ER docs there that uh, there may be as many as 90,000 illegal abortions taking place a year in the Dominican Republic. That's an awful lot of uh, folks who are dealing with unplanned pregnancies who don't have a lot of resources because of Um, there's not a lot of cultural awareness that this sort of thing is taking place. Um, In addition to that, that's a lot of post-abortive folks who are burying and hiding Mm -hmm. uh, their guilt and their grief uh, that are not receiving the care that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Not to mention the the medical complications that may be taking place from illegal abortions. We have good reason to believe that a lot of those are chemical abortions. Um, A lot of times the complications, believe it or not, from chemical abortions uh, can be worse than uh, complications following surgical abortions. So, and that's just the Dominican Republic. Um, 
There are other issues that are dealt with. Um, culturally speaking, uh, having conversations with our missionary leadership in, in Latin America, um, the cultural approach to death and dying seems to be different. Um, and so there's uh, some room for growth in that regard. We do know that in the Dominican Republic, um, domestic violence is the fourth leading cause of death amongst women. Um, mm. So we would consider that a life issue as well. Absolutely. I, it, regarding aging and death, I, I think um, probably many other cultures have a an appreciation for the for the older generation mm-hmm. and and regard for uh, the elderly, especially those in the last years of mm-hmm. of life, uh, much different than perhaps many parts of our American culture do. Can be in in speaking with pastors um, working throughout the region, though it's kind of a paradox. Uh, on the one hand, um, everything in the Dominican Republic and other parts of Latin America is about family. Uh, so the interesting thing was we were, we were driving um, on the roads out of town to where the seminary operates. And there's a, a congregation that meets there on Sunday mornings. And so you'd drive past these rows of dwellings. And what struck me was that everybody was home. Even after we uh, came back from church in the afternoon, everybody was home. Uh, in the States, I think things are different. Um, home is a place where we sleep, where we rest, but it's not so much the place where we network with other folks. We often go out into public to do those things, but, um, this was taking place. Uh, so on the one hand, there's, there's, um, really a high regard for family and extended family. Um, it's common knowledge that, uh, elderly members of family, uh, reside in the same, mm-hmm. uh, multi-generational, uh, yeah, multi-generational on the other hand, though, um, I'm being told by by pastors who uh, minister to uh, Latin American Christians that um, death and dying are met with kind of a cultural denial that um, to, to in some cases, um, younger um, adult children who are caring for their aging parents as those parents begin to uh, approach death, um, giving them, for example, pain medication like aspirin or Tylenol and saying, this is going to make you all better. Um, or denying the fact that, uh, mom or dad is even entering the last stages of life. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the grieving process is different, um, because, uh, the culture is so community-oriented. Grieving is very public, uh, can be very dramatic, different from kind of the individualized, private uh, types of grief that we have in the United States. But those displays of grief um, take on a different dimension. And, um, you know, the pastors are telling me that that uh, individuals still uh, have a difficult time dealing with the reality mm. of uh, deceased loved ones. So you you spent some time in the in the Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. learning about the, the the culture and the the uh, the work of the church there, mm-hmm. as well the missionaries who are serving there, and learning quite a bit from the mm-hmm. culture. What was it like? How long were you there? In the uh, I was there four days, I believe. So coming back to the U.S. 
Uh, you weren't there long enough, I guess, to uh, for it to be that significant of a change when you came no, back. No, the, there were there were differences. I mean, it it, it was eye opening. Um, looking out, I was staying at an apartment that's uh, leased by LCMS International Mission down there in Santiago de los Caballeros in the Dominican, and and looking out the back window, um, you could see was this this place where a family was living, right? Because when the door was open, you could see uh, furniture inside. But it was a one-room dwelling that consisted of a wooden frame and then planks of plywood leaned up against that wooden frame for walls and some corrugated um, tin for the roof. And uh, that that's very different than, I think, um, standards of living in the States, um, visited at a, a group home for disabled children that operates on the seminary campus. And uh, that was uh, delightful as well. Um, Castillo but, Fuerte? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> as in terms of the name, I was mm-hmm. taking in uh, all, all of the people. Um, but, but I found the, the Dominican people to be very hospitable. Um, the... It, it was interesting to hear the missionaries' anecdotes about life in the Dominican. Um, every door that you go through is locked after you go through it because burglary uh, is a big problem. The missionaries say things tend to go missing, but the burglary very rarely involves any kind of assault. So not robbery, but burglary. It's right. Yeah. Um, and one one missionary told the story of her sister who was robbed of her purse at gunpoint, um, but the the gunman uh, was actually helping her to disentangle herself from the strap of her purse, pull it off over her shoulder. So they were very polite about their robbery. Um, and the missionaries said, you know, they would never fear for their personal safety. Um, so just... You know, those interesting kind of things that exist in tension with one another. Very interesting. Well, coming back to uh, to the U.S. here, uh, some of the current issues in, uh, in matters of life that uh, you and I had looked at beforehand to, mm-hmm. to cover today. Um, I think uh, heading to Philadelphia, um, some of the research regarding artificial wombs. Interesting. Yes, this is this is a thing now. Artificial wombs have been used uh, to gestate uh, sheep um, prenatally. Um, so that you know, when when I think of artificial womb, I'm thinking of like uh, what is what are these mad scientists stitching together out of living tissue, and and they have it in some sort of incubator. That's not really how it is. Artificial wombs essentially are. Um, just containers that are climate controlled and have uh, some some nutrient chemical balance that happens there. Uh, the technology does not currently exist to gestate artificially from conception. So we're talking about um, even past the midpoint of gestation. These were what uh, twenty. Th- this was really supporting potentially infants from 23 to 28 weeks. Right. So, well, we're talking about fetal sheep. Um, 
what the the most immediate application in the human context would be for premature infants. Of course, uh, we know that every additional day, every additional week, that uh, and uh, baby can uh, before birth uh, continue to gestate in the mother's womb. Um, is way better, even though our technology and our medical care has advanced to a point that we're regularly hearing uh, of situations where premature infants are surviving 23 weeks, 22 weeks, in one case, 21 weeks gestation. So that's just past the midpoint of a 40-week pregnancy. Um, So the immediate application would be for providing support and care for premature infants. Um, and that's why this technology is is, right. is being researched. This was a physician uh, research team led by Dr. Uh, Alan Flake at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. researching this for the purpose of uh, their their expressed intent is um, th- specifically for uh, premature uh, children. Right, uh, but it is the nature of fallen man to take uh, anything which is good and turn it into something awful. Um, and so we, we're we apprehensive naturally uh, about um, off-label applications for things like this. And, and while, while it may be laudable um, to improve the technology that we have for preserving the lives of children who are born prematurely, um, it's, it, it's, it, inspires a little bit of hesitancy in us in how such technology might be used um, for bioengineering. Mm-hmm. Um, we're one step, with, with the advent of this technology, we're one step closer to removing procreation from the context that the Almighty Maker set it within, um, such that we can see on the horizon one day uh, maybe... There's no biological need for a womb at all. There's a bit of a sci-fi overtone to this. It, it, I understand the intention is mm-hmm. for caring for the the, uh, the premature Absolutely. infants that uh, to to provide that that nurturing womb-like mm-hmm. environment for them so that the lungs can continue to develop and and I understand ultimately that. to save a life. Right. Yes. However. I see what you're saying. The potential here is uh, something that kind of takes me back to the Matrix movie of the, the a, 90s. A little bit for for our younger audience, <laughs> for our older audience who remembers reading Brave New World uh, in, in high school that uh, was kind of the literary inspiration for that scene in the Matrix where you just have these, these uh, fetus factories mm-hmm. where human beings are produced and and uh, that's why it's important for us as Christians to continue to use uh, scriptural language, to speak of procreation rather than reproduction, um, so that we, we remember the context that our Heavenly Father has set these things in. It's so kind of you to refer to our generation as a younger <laughs> generation. Uh, if we're talking about movies from the 90s, that, that's our generation. Well, We're not it, the Andy, younger that's generation. The, that's the late 90s. The Matrix <laughs> came out in 99. So Was it 99? It's, you, have, you have high school students today who were born the same year that it came out. <laughs> so that means we're not that old. 
<laughs> so this was this was conducted in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and uh, so far has only been um, done with with as you said, sheep with lambs. Right. Um, so this has not been, as far as we know, but not been done with humans. But the potential is there. You'll recall that uh, the the first cloning of uh, of a mammal was was a sheep, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't too many years after that that we heard. Uh, reports out of China that there had been attempts to clone embryos. Hmm. So, so artificial wombs. Uh, the the technology is there. The potential is there. But there are still questions, and the potential for danger. Absolutely, and that's where we're at. We we need to be responsible in the gifts of medical advancement and care that our heavenly Father gives us. Um, because they are gifts, and so when they are used in accordance with His will, uh, they become instruments uh, of His saving power, of His life-giving power. But we want to be ethically responsible, um, and we recognize that uh, there is no gift greater uh, than the gift of eternal life and immortality, which He gives to us uh, exclusively as human beings. And so um, asking those questions of what is the good, right, and salutary use of something like this? What are the dangers that it could pose? And um, how can it recast or um, make us reframe what it means to be a human being and what procreation consists of? Dr. Bob Weiss's infamous question that he always poses, what does it mean to be human? Right. Uh, the question that we we should frequently ask mm-hmm. uh, in order to understand who we are in relationship to our creator. And I think the the sort of the, the thing that makes us the most anxious about artificial womb technology is um, the context of bioengineering, genetic engineering, that it, it takes place in. Um, so coupled with other uh, recent developments uh, that have to do with uh, the efficiency of gene editing, um, that have to do with how uh, embryos are treated uh, in the laboratory. Um, in that context, uh, as we begin to move into um, kind of a mindset that uh, children are commodities, um, that uh, everyone who wants children should be able to have children, but no more or no fewer than exactly how many they choose. And, um, you know, ethicists have been sounding the bell for generations about uh, designer babies mm-hmm. or attempting to uh, to choose certain uh, traits, whether they be physical or behavioral, uh, of children in um, unnatural ways that could lead to uh, discrimination or elimination of certain populations of human beings, and then it becomes uh, an evil. Author Katie Schurman makes a, a good point regarding that that very issue. Our even our language reflects how we view. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the gift of children and and we don't necessarily use gift language and mm-hmm. and she calls for you know she encourages us to return to gift language when it comes to children but the phrase make a baby yeah it almost it, it carries that tone that that children are a commodity rather than a gift right uh, and and 
you know, we can go back as far as the uh, the separation of um, sexuality from procreation. Uh, that that somehow the the primary um, somehow the primary purpose of our sexuality is uh, for the enjoyment of adults or the sole purpose, right? Of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even the uh, you mentioned China a little bit ago, mm-hmm. uh, and the, there's an interesting story out of China and uh, embryonic stem cell trials happening mm-hmm. there. So doctors are uh, have announced their plans to apply um, some embryonic stem cells. So these are, um, you'll recall that, that stem cells um, represent a stage of, of cell development when the cell can turn into any of a wide variety of different kinds of cells and tissues. And, um, and so at, at the early stages of human development, the, the first two, four, eight, 16 cells really have the ability to turn into um, all of the different cells uh, of the human body. Um, a testimony to the miraculous power and the wonder of our creator who designs things uh, in such a gracious way. Um, in order to harvest those stem cells, embryos are destroyed. Um, so human beings are put to death in order to use their uh, tissues, in this case just for experimentation. There is absolutely no evidence that uh, embryonic stem cells um, have been useful in therapies. In this case, they're going to try to treat Parkinson's disease. Um, on the other hand, uh, we do rejoice because stem cells um, engineered from the cells of adult human beings have shown lots of different um, promise in being used as remedies. And, and those without uh, the ethical difficulties that come with harvesting embryonic stem cells. So stem cells can be, uh, can come from uh, someone without, without killing a human being. So there's this remarkable development around the same time. uh, This is probably, oh, 15 or 20 years ago in our country, around the same time that we were having the discussion of stem cells, there was a major advancement in what's called induced pluripotent cells, which is just a fancy way of saying they're stem cells that didn't start out as stem cells. But they took, for example, researchers were able to take adult skin cells, which we shed in by the billions every day, adult skin cells, and turn those into pluripotent cells, which are stem cells that have the ability to turn into any other kind of cell. Um, And so they were able to take that and and make that happen. So one wonders, honestly, uh, at what the reason is for the continued use of embryonic stem cells in research uh, when induced pluripotent cells uh, are the ones that have shown the most promise. We're talking with the Reverend Michael Salaminka, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life. Current issues, uh, current life issues. We'll be back in just a moment right here on Faith and Family.
Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee, with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Here are two more reasons we have Mother's Day. Dr. Amanda Hess was in a hospital gown there to deliver her baby when she heard a mother crying out in pain. Both the mother and baby were in distress, and the on-call doctor was out of the hospital on break. Dr. Hess donned another gown to hide her backside and proceeded to deliver the baby girl. Hours later, she gave birth to her own. Danielle Gaither suffers from Marfan syndrome, a chronic condition affecting her heart, among other things. She was late in pregnancy when she suffered life-threatening complications. Doctors did both an open-heart surgery and a C-section with a slim chance of survival. Her baby boy was fine, but Danielle spent months recovering in the hospital. God made moms out of sturdy stock. Follow us on Twitter at Life Issues USA and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance on KFUO, inviting you to tune in to the weekend edition of the program, the new time of 7.45 a.m. Saturday and Sunday mornings, Central Time. There'll be a different text and theme each week and plenty of encouragement and strength which only the Lord's Word can supply. So join me for a quarter hour of God's power and strength. That's Moments of Assurance weekend at 7.45 a.m. Saturday and Sunday mornings on KFUO. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited, and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. Visitors are flocking to Wittenberg, Germany this year for the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation. You too can follow in Luther's footsteps through a new two-part video called The Luther Mile. Tour the cradle of the Reformation with LCMS President Reverend Dr. Matthew Harrison as he provides facts and anecdotes of historic Reformation sites. Watch The Luther Mile at lutheranreformation.org slash luthermile Technology is always changing and Worldwide KFUO keeps up with the emerging broadcast and internet technology. We proclaim the gospel to the world via the radio, online, and on demand. Listen to AM850 KFUO in St. Louis or listen to our live stream and on-demand audio at kfuo.org. Worldwide KFUO proclaims in word and song the message of mercy and forgiveness through Christ. We are Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news.
You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Eddie Bates, talking life issues, life topics with the Reverend Michael Salamink. He's the executive director of Lutherans for Life and spending some time talking about uh, current issues in the news that uh, are very pertinent to us when it comes to matters of life. We were just talking about embryonic stem cell trials in China, particularly to treat Parkinson's and macular g- degeneration. Mm-hmm. And so the, the uh, if I understand correctly, the, the intent was to um, use embryonic stem cells to uh, to treat Parkinson's through in, injections mm-hmm. and, and macular degeneration the same way, doing mm-hmm. an, an injection. What were the, in addition to the concerns of using you know, using and destroying embryos, um, human embryos for these trials. Mm-hmm. There are other concerns regarding these trials as well. Um, uh, there was a uh, what a biologist, a stem cell biologist in California from the Scripps Research Institute in California, who was concerned that this is really perhaps a. a a, a bit wider, uh, the potential here for danger is a bit wider mm-hmm. than 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 sure. really is unforeseen uh, safe. consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, this is happens regularly with research in genetic engineering. Um, so, for example, just you know th- things that uh, we don't understand the explanation for yet that um, genetically engineered organisms. Uh, in some cases, um, have shorter life expectancy, um, lower overall quality of health than their non-genetically engineered counterparts in some cases. Um, So cloned organisms, for example, have a markedly shorter uh, lifespan than... um, the counterparts they were cloned from, and we don't have an ex. We don't ha- understand the scientific explanation for that yet, and so um, the use of uh, embryonic stem cells that could develop into a wide variety of different cells. No one has uh, any idea. That's why we do uh, experiments with medical technologies because there are consequences that we cannot foresee, um, and so in addition to the ethical concerns of uh, putting human beings to death so that their parts can be um, used to uh, experiment on other human beings. Um, just the standard kind of medical concerns that come with uh, with trials that um, that there may be unforeseen dangers to the participants. And in, in this case, potential mutation. Right. Uh, that has been one of the uh, one of the warning. Warnings that has been sounded for a long time about stem cell research is the possibility that um, stem cells could uh, turn into cancerous tumors or they could cause mutations in the cells of the host or the receiving patient. Um, and these, these are things we just don't know. The, uh, another current issue goes back to a story from last year. The, uh, the doctor who introduced the three-parent baby uh, concept, this protocol mm-hmm. for uh, for using... It, it's kind of deceiving, this <laughs> idea of three-parent baby. Uh, take us back to that story from last year and then, and then bring us up to 
what the, the current issue is as well. So this has to do with disorders of mitochondria. Mm-hmm. And if you remember from your high school biology class, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. So it's responsible for uh, synthesizing the energy that the cell uses um, to continue living, reproducing, and functioning. Um, in some individuals, those mitochondria are genetically compromised. And this is a very serious condition that in a lot of cases uh, can lead to death in addition to all kinds of other uh, disorders. Um, So because it is congenital, uh, it's inherited from the parents and there's nothing the parents can do uh, to prevent their children from uh, inheriting this, from being born with it. Well, um, scientists developed a protocol for what the, what the media calls three-parent uh, embryos, but really what it is uh, is um, what happens is an embryo is, is created by two parents. Um, who, the embryo then that has this mitochondrial disorder, the nucleus of that one-celled embryo is implanted into the host cell of a third person who is neither the mother nor the father. This would be a donor. So there's no genetic information. Uh, no. From the, the third party. <laughs> At least as far as we can tell. This is this, another this one is of true. those situations yeah. where all of the consequences have not played out yet. So what happens is uh, the donor cell, the nucleus is removed, but it still retains the healthy mitochondria. And then uh, the the unhealthy the nucleus from the genetically compromised embryos implanted into that cell. And then um, development is, is permitted to go on. Uh, there was success, at least in one trial trial that I know of, uh, that a child was, was born. Um, which is that, that procedure is not legal in the United States it, yet. <laughs> so it, uh, it took place in Mexico, I believe. Well, there are, see the, the procedure in which the nucleus is transplanted is legal, but the embryo that results from that cannot legally be implanted into a woman's womb in the United States. It's a a really goofy kind of understanding of humanity that uh, uh, the culture of America, at least the culture of the the government that funds this research is such that embryos don't count as human beings. And so we can create and destroy them pretty much at will. Uh, But we don't want to negatively impact actual human beings. And so... um, it, it's not legal to implant those embryos. And so uh, actually the, the trial that resulted in, in a, a, a healthy birth uh, was performed in the United Kingdom. Um, but we do have doctors in the United States who understand uh, how the protocol works and, and are capable of producing these genetically modified embryos that come from the cells of three different adults, two of which are parents, uh, and then a, a third cell. That provides the healthy... That provides the healthy mitochondria. mitochondria. The ethical problem with a situation like this has to do with parentage. Um, And it has to do with experimentation on embryos. Um, The embryo, the the baby, the healthy baby that was born um, did not have a say in whether or not it was experimented on in this way. Um, So the rights of the child are overlooked... Um, beyond that, there's a whole host of legal 
questions about whose child is this, who has parental responsibility for this child, since um, since the child has tissue, has cells from three different individuals. Uh, and then the question of the psychological impact it might have on that child as she develops into an adult. Uh, thinking, what is my identity? Who am I? Is very much bound up with where do I come from? Um, and so uh, those questions are of vital importance as we think about these developments as well. And so this story is back in news currently uh, this summer. Yeah, there's a, a particularly cavalier doctor out of New York uh, or in the uh, in the Northeast somewhere, maybe Connecticut, who has uh, decided that he wants to market the three-parent technology um, to be able to help older women become mothers without the dangers um, as... As we age, especially for females, um, our uh, gametes, which are the the cells, the sperm, and the egg that are responsible for procreation that contribute to the life of a new child, um, suffer from the effects of aging as well. And so this doctor has proposed that he can use this three-parent technique um, to overcome some of those difficulties and uh, help women uh, achieve live birth. Um, In it's a form of in vitro fertilization, but because it's illegal in the United States, uh, what he proposes is that he can create the embryos in his laboratory in the U.S. and then travel to Mexico where there are no such restrictions, uh, and then he can uh, implant uh, in in that context. And, and he's willing to, to monetize this and charge for it uh, to sort of take advantage of the market and play upon... Um, the hopes and fears of people who struggle with infertility. Um, he really has no regard for the ethical questions. As a matter of fact, I believe in the story that came out, he is quoted as saying, um, every development is another step towards designer babies. And so he sort of accepts the fact that um, genetic engineering is a foregone conclusion and we should take advantage of it as much as we can. And, Genetic engineering makes its way into the news as well mm-hmm. this summer. Um, human genetic engineering, mm-hmm. not just, uh, we've talked quite a bit about genetic engineering when it comes to other organisms, sure. but uh, now we're talking human and uh, genetic engineering. What is, where are we currently with that? Well, the, the process for um, genetic engineering, which, which has to do with the editing uh, or the, the replacing, the transplanting of the genetic code, the DNA, that, uh, that essentially is, is the roadmap for the development of the entire human body, um, has become a lot more efficient. So in, in, uh, in prior times, um, in order to edit the genes of an organism, you had to introduce another infectious agent into that organism. So this would be like a bacterium or a virus uh, that had been uh, deactivated or, or had its, its negative uh, properties taken away or perhaps it was harmless. And then what you would do is, is 
you would um, breed that organism in such a way that it has the desired genetic code. Then you would introduce that organism into the host organism or the recipient. And then through the natural processes of interaction and infection, uh, the genetic code would be transferred. Um, now, researchers have developed a process whereby they can directly uh, introduce a series of chemicals into a cell that can essentially cut, copy, and paste individual genes um, in the, the host organism. And in this case, in human embryos, the ethical problems with this have to do with, uh, like we mentioned before, um, the rights of the child uh, who may not wish to have such uh, experimentation or modification performed on her. Oh, it has to do with the unforeseen consequences. We are still in the very infancy stages of understanding how genetic engineering affects complex organisms like mammals and human beings. Um, and then the, the the ethical considerations that have to do with germ, what are called germline manipulations. So um, because these modifications take place in the embryo stage of human development, these genetic modifications then are passed on also to all of that individual's offspring and all of their offspring's offspring. So potentially um, by making um, what we see are... are benign or innocuous um, genetic modifications, we are affecting subsequent uh, generations. Subsequent yeah. generation and eventually maybe the entire human population. And that is something that requires a lot more forethought and care. It's one thing to develop such techniques for therapy, for treatment mm -hmm. of of disease, for uh, the to 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 eliminate disease, and we're going to get to another topic on eliminating, eliminating right. disease uh, in just a moment. But uh, it's one thing to develop techniques or or therapies for treatment. Mm -hmm. It's another when those are used for engineering of, as you, the phrase you mentioned a bit ago, designer babies, for creating humans with specific traits to meet our expectations or our preferences. Right. And and it it might seem um, to be well-intentioned in the beginning. For example, if we can genetically engineer um, if we can genetically engineer away some fatal congenital defects. Um, you know, conditions like spina bifida, which are often fatal, or trisomy 18, which is similar to Down syndrome, only it's much more serious and often results in fetal demise or the death of a baby before that baby even lives for one year. If we can genetically engineer things like that away, it seems like a good thing. We're saving lives. Um, but uh, there are just a whole host of questions that we don't have answers to. Um, and... With human beings, it just doesn't take long before we take even something that seems like it's intended for good and use it for evil. Um, think about the technology that led to the development of atomic weapons. Um, the ability to split the atom uh, has resulted in a revolution in clean energy. Um, on the other hand, when it was used for destruction, uh, it, it became very awful. 
the same thing is true uh, using genetic uh, manipulation technologies to be able to to treat or prevent diseases it's not really uh, a far leap um, to the point where we try to engineer certain human beings and get into uh, a class of, of discredited science called eugenics, which is where we try to to breed human beings into a sort of better type of human being. A, a, a type of human being that has a desired traits or specific uh, well, think traits. For example, um, in our culture, mm. um, professional athletes can get rich and persons who are taller and have denser muscle mass and have a, a higher proportion of fast twitch muscles um, generally do well at athletics. So why couldn't we just design a child that has genetic code for those sorts of traits and increase their odds that they might be happy, healthy, successful. And then we can win all the Olympic Games. Uh, and then then we can become gods. We can genetically mm-hmm. engineer our own immortality. Mm-hmm. You know, the sky's the limit. Um, building a Tower of Babel. So what starts perhaps as intended for good to, to treat... Uh, a disease or to prevent a disease, uh, a potentially fatal disease, mm-hmm. um, has also the potential for evil. Absolutely. We mentioned just a, a few minutes ago about uh, eliminating a disease. A recent story making headlines this week, uh, at least in social media, is Iceland and a, a culture there that... Um, to some, appears that they're aiming at eliminating Down syndrome through a particular practice. Yeah, the, pro- <laughs> the problem is they're not really curing Down syndrome. Um, what Iceland has supposedly succeeded at doing as a culture is aborting 100% of babies who are conceived and diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, that's 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 really dangerous and and uh, awful precedent to set to suggest that the cure for suffering is simply to kill the sufferer and this is something that uh, that cer- certain government leaders in Iceland have celebrated um, and the story that was run uh, was actually run on CBS uh, about this particular um, statistic in Iceland. Uh, and while the story was balanced, it was biased in favor of um, this being a good thing. We're deceiving ourselves if we think that we are eliminating a disease by 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 killing the sufferer, as you said. Not only that, uh, but um, the response from uh, the population of individuals who have Down syndrome or who are family to those persons who have Down syndrome or um, the populations of other persons with disabilities has largely been outrage um, because the elimination of an entire group of human beings um, 
is being celebrated as a good thing. Uh, the suggestion, then the the subtext being that it is better to be a human being without Down syndrome than to be a human being with. In fact, it is so much better that it's better to be a dead human being with Down syndrome than a live human being with Down syndrome. And and um, first of all, first and foremost. Uh, a, a person's value as a human being does not come from their physical characteristics or their abilities or their accomplishments. Um, a person's value as a human being comes from the fact that they are a member of the species Homo sapiens, created uh, by the hands of God, knit together each person in his or her mother's womb, uh, redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh at the moment of conception and became a zygote, an embryo himself. Um, and then with that body suffered for the sins of the whole world, every human being, no exception, um, that's what gives dignity and value to human beings, not some of these external characteristics. But um, what what persons with disabilities are pushing back against um, is the the sort of the assumption that um, a life with Down syndrome is always worse than a life without Down syndrome, which is not necessarily the case. Um, all of us, I'm sure, know. Uh, acquaintances mm -hmm. uh, who have Down syndrome. They are people. They have delightful personalities. Um, they interact with others. They have human relationships. They contribute to society. Some of whom have been my guests. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and rightly should be celebrated. And, and the suggestion is even made that, that because of the disability that they live with, they have a different perspective than persons without that disability, a perspective which is necessary for our flourishing as a human civilization. But even if a child is conceived with Down syndrome and that Down syndrome leads to fetal demise, causes death, that does not mean that that child's life has been a waste or that it has been unvaluable. Um, God within his mysterious wisdom has a purpose for every single human life, no matter how long they live. And we are richer as a human community for every human being that becomes a part of, of the human race. Uh, every human being is a treasure. I think we often deceive ourselves in thinking that our perception, our perspective is wider than it really is. We we convince ourselves that it that our perspective is is greater than it really is. And I would encourage uh, I would encourage our listeners not to think of disability uh, or special needs as uh, a black or white or what we would call a zero sum game, but to think of it more as a spectrum. Every human being has special needs needs and abilities that are unique to that person. Um, compared to other people, I don't have the abilities that they have. Um, so every child that is conceived is a special needs child because every human being has unique needs. 
And if we think of it that way, then it's not as if there is a good baby and then a bad baby. Like somehow um, this one is not going to measure up. It comes back to that gift language mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know, I mentioned earlier from author Katie Shorman that if we, we regard uh, marriage, family, children as gifts, then uh, uh, perhaps our, our perspective on these things will change. Uh, one more issue uh, before we, at least one more, we've got about a minute here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the There's an increase in the suicide rate, which has increased our mortality rate in the United States. So in the United States, there's, there has been over the uh, past several years a dramatic increase in the rate of suicide, especially among uh, teenagers and young adults. And it has been so pronounced that it has actually driven up the mortality rate in the United States, the death rate for the first time since the 1930s. Um, people racking their brains trying to figure out why is the suicide rate going up? I think I would trace it um, and and most observers trace it to two causes. One, social fragmentation. Um, just the idea that we're more disconnected than we ever used to be. Um, so fewer people are involved in civic societies or congregations. Um, and we're separated by these digital walls. And, and uh, so it's a lot more individualistic. But secondly, um, the development of, of a utilitarian ideal of humankind, that a person's value comes from what they do. And this is where all of these sort of life issues tie together with this story on suicide. Um, as Lutherans, we celebrate that a human being's value is by what God does and not by what we do, by grace and not by works. And that has to do not just with our eternal salvation, but with our value as human beings, both to God and to each other. And the only antidote for suicide, for abortion, for the drive towards genetic engineering is this recognition that it is God's grace that gives absolute infinite value to every single human life. Lutheransforlife.org, great site for resources on many of these issues we discussed today. Exhaustive library on all of these issues. My guest today, the Reverend Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life. Pastor Salamink, always great to talk with you. Thanks for keeping us informed. Thank you for the conversation, Andy. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word, right here on the Messenger of Good News Worldwide, KFUO. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.